title today is Godly Sorrow. So what we're going to do is read, last time we read through verse 4, and we're going to go ahead and read verses 5 through the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray, then we'll, we'll just go through it and talk about it a bit. So 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 5, and I read from the NASB version, but we've got New King James, or we've got King James, we have NIV, people are all over the place here, we're, we're good with all of it, so... Um, Starting in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without fear, fears within. I'm sorry, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, <clears throat> though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I had boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that everything I have, that in everything I have confidence in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would teach us this morning from your word. You'd help us to grow closer to you. You'd help us to recognize um, the kind of Paul, the kind of life that Paul lived, and the kind of feelings that he had towards this church, and also to recognize the the motives he had for doing what he did, and how those relate to us, and how we should relate to um, issues of confrontation and issues of of sin, and how we should be sorrowful yet to the point of repentance, not to the point of condemnation. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So as we've gone through this letter. We've seen that Paul has a few different purposes in writing it. And one of those purposes is to give an account of his dealings with this church. Because a lot has happened, and he kind of goes over pieces of that. But that's just one of the purposes. He also recognizes that in this church there are some who question Paul's apostolic authority. They question his teachings. They question his motives. And so he also spends time in this letter explaining why he did certain things, explaining why he acted certain ways, why he was so bold when he preached and that it wasn't out of pride, for example. Um, and so he's going through that and he kind, of, he kind of weaves in and out of these different topics in a way that he wants to, which is fine and the Holy Spirit inspired him. It's sometimes difficult for us following along because he'll, he'll pick up here, at, like in verse 5, in the, and you feel like you're in the middle of 
story that he like he came into Macedonia, and you feel like, okay, so then verse 4, he must have been talking about this. Well, he wasn't, but what happened is back in chapter 2, in verse 12, is where he began discussing part of that story. So in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, he says, When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened to me for the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus, but taking leave of them, I went to Macedonia. And then he kind of goes in a different direction for a few chapters, and now he comes back to it here. And so the way he kind of weaves the story in it, like within, integrated with teaching and application and things is, is sometimes difficult but to follow, but it's, it's the way the Holy Spirit inspired him to do. And so what I want to do is just, now that we're back into story mode with Paul, is kind of remind us of the story a little bit. Um, so we've just gone through five chapters of pretty deep, powerful, passionate teaching between chapters 2 and, and this chapter 6. Um, but so Paul mentions in chapter 2 that he was in Troas. And so that's where the story, you know, stopped. And then these chapters, and then this chapter now, Macedonia. But you wonder, okay, well, so why? So, okay, we get it. He left Troas to look for Titus in Macedonia. Well, why was he in Troas? And so you got to kind of go further back. And so the basic story is this. In Acts chapter 18, Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey. You may remember that we've gone through Acts together. It's been a while, but he went there, and there were challenges in Corinth, but God told him, stay here. I have a specific work I want to do here, and so Paul stayed there for a year and a half. That's a long missionary journey if you're going city to city to stay in one place for a year and a half. Timothy was also there pretty early on, and so was Silas back then in Acts chapter 18. So both Silas and Timothy were with Paul, and they were part of this church planting work in Corinth. And so God blessed it. After some time, Paul continues on to Ephesus. And from there, that's where he wrote the letter 1 Corinthians, was while in Ephesus after leaving Corinth. But that wasn't the first letter he had written them. Do you, do you remember that? In 1 Corinthians, the letter, he refers to a different letter he had written them before. And he also refers to a letter that they wrote him. So there was communication going back and forth, but 1 Corinthians is the first letter we have of that. Um, and so Paul had found that there was some stuff going on in the church that he had to deal with, and so he confronts him on things like division and, and lawsuits and bad behavior and things that were happening in the church. So that was 1 Corinthians. And then a lot more happened between then and this letter. There was further communication between Paul and this church in addition to another visit. And all this happened before 2 Corinthians began. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about not wanting to visit them a third time in sorrow. So he'd been there once for a year and a half, and now he's talking about wanting to come to them again. He wants to come a third time, so there was a second visit, and Paul calls this a sorrowful visit. And he also talks about this sorrowful letter in the text here. So it seems that people during that visit, when he visited the second time, it was a sorrowful visit. It didn't go well. People were probably open, openly questioning Paul and challenging him. So when he left, he wrote them this severe, sorrowful letter. And he said in chapter 2 of this book, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. And this letter was sent by Titus. So before this letter begins, Paul wrote a severe letter to Corinth sent by Titus, and that's when Paul says, and so we went to Troas because the gospel door was open, we were ministering there, but I had no rest in my spirit because I needed to find Titus. 
Paul had such a love for this church that after writing that severe letter, he just needed to know how they received it. He wanted to find out, did they respond well? Did they respond bad? What was the status of the church in Corinth? They didn't have email back then. They didn't have mobile phones. It was all letters. And so they made a plan. You know, Titus, go deliver this letter, and I'll find you in Troas afterwards. So they go to Troas, and Titus isn't there. A gospel door is opened, which is great, and Paul would normally jump at that. But because of his love for the Corinthian church, he doesn't stay there. So they must have made a plan. If I don't see you in Troas, then I'll go to Macedonia and I'll find you there. And that's what happened. They meet up in Macedonia. And so that's kind of what brings us up into the current text. So there's been a lot of anguish on Paul's part. There's been a lot of challenge in this church. And Paul's had to write them a harsh letter. And so now we're up to verse 5. And so Paul says, Even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Now, when Paul talks about their flesh having no rest and these conflicts and these fears, um, not much is known about this time in Macedonia. I mean, you can know that, generally speaking, wherever Paul went, there was opposition, and there were often beatings and imprisonments and and stonings and things that happened to Paul. So it might have been that. It might have been that part of his fears was wondering what's happening with the church in Corinth. But they came to Macedonia looking for Titus, and they were struggling. It was hard. But in the midst of that hardship, God had provided some very needed comfort for them. In verse 6, Paul said, God who comforts the depressed. That's a nice name for God. The God who comforts the depressed. It's pretty cool. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us by uh, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so I rejoice even more. So this could have gone very differently. You know, Paul goes to Macedonia to find Titus. It's hard anyway. The mission field is hard. And he could have heard from Titus, they didn't listen to your letter at all. They, They ripped it, they burned it. They beat me up. They sent me on my way. It could have gone bad, but it didn't. And this was great news. They responded well. After Paul had visited and it didn't go well, then Paul wrote this letter, and by the grace of God, it went well. They received it well. It's so great that God, even when he allows hardship, provides ways of comfort in the midst of that hardship. And that's why we so often refer to bittersweet times of trial. Kids, do you know what that term bittersweet means? No. Bittersweet is like when something bad happens, but there's also something kind of good comes out of it too. So when you look back later, it's still kind of hurtful, but there's something good in it. Coronavirus, that's going to be a long bittersweet because there's a lot of hardship, but God is doing some good things through it too, isn't he? Um, a lot of churches are figuring out how to reach more people online, for example, because people aren't meeting in the home. And so we've got virtual things set up and we're, you know, having to figure out how much we trust God in the midst of all the fear that many people face. And so, yeah, we're going to look back on this and be like, that was bittersweet, hopefully. But because hardships come and when coronavirus is over, something else is going to come and the next election is going to come. And the next political scandal is going to come. And the next, you know, death is going to come. The next shooting is going to come. The next rioting is going to come. There's always something next that's coming. But if we're faithful to God and we're following him, he will provide, I'm convinced, 
sources of little comfort along the way to let us know, I see you, I'm sovereign over this, I'm in control, I'm allowing this right now, but here's just a reminder that I love you. Here's some small piece of comfort along the way, just so you know that I still love you, I still see you, I'm still remembering you. And so it's great. This is, this is our, our loving, caring God. And so this happened to Paul. They were in a difficult situation in Macedonia, and they find Titus, and Titus had good news, and he was overjoyed. Now, there were, might, may have been times when Paul thought, should I have written that letter, this harsh, severe letter? Now, we don't have the letter Paul wrote, and I think that's by design. I think God didn't want us to see this letter. I think, and I've talked about this before, Paul mentioned somebody in chapter 2 that he doesn't want to name, doesn't want to give details, says, but this person without giving away too much, and then he continues. Um, I think Paul had something very personal to deal with with that church that did not need to be known by the universal church for all time. And so I think God hid some of that. And I think God does that with us as well. Sometimes when we go through a sin and someone confronts us and we can confess and we can get past it, the whole world doesn't need to know about it, right? If we can handle it that way. And so God, I think, didn't allow us to see this issue, but it was severe. And I'm sure there were times when Paul thought, maybe I shouldn't have written that. Maybe it was too harsh. All we know is that this letter was very severe. It caused a lot of sorrow and it was likely written in pretty harsh terms as a kind of last resort. So imagine you're, you've got a teenage child and they're going down this wrong path and you're trying to correct them and they won't listen and the conversation is getting harsher and harsher and at some point you're saying things like, you know, if this doesn't change, tough love is going to happen. You can't live under my roof if you're going to be doing these things and you're really hoping they don't leave. You're hoping they don't choose that, but you're like, if you're going to live this way, you can't be under my roof and not listen to my rules. And this is kind of, I think, how Paul had this letter was like, this is as harsh as I'm going to be, and this is kind of the final straw. If they don't listen, that's going to be the end of it. And so I'm sure part of him is like a parent would go, like, ah, I shouldn't have maybe done that. Maybe I shouldn't have said those things. And he did regret it. It says in verse 8, I did regret it. For though I cause you sorrow, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. So Paul did regret writing the letter. Maybe he thought it was too harsh. Maybe he thought, I've just pushed them too far. Maybe I could have handled things differently. But now he doesn't. He no longer regrets it. And why? Sure. <laughs> That's a good answer, too. That one. Also because it caused them to repent. Starting in verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. He wasn't trying to make them feel bad, but he says, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Sorrowful according to the will of God. And then um, in the next verse, verse 10, sorrow according to the will of God. Now, in, in the NASB, there are some words that are in brackets, which means the Greek doesn't have all these words, and the editors added words to make it make more sense. So in the Greek, it was more literally would say, sorrowful to repentance, sorrowful according to God, <clears throat> and... Um, yeah, sorrow that is according to God. So it's also called godly sorrow in verse 11. <clears throat> so I guess the question is, are we ever supposed to feel bad for our sin? 
I know some people even hate the word sin because they don't want to feel bad and think about it. And in their mind, people have probably just focused too much on that. And people can live their whole life feeling bad and feeling condemned. But does that mean we shouldn't feel sorrow? Well, here's two questions for you. What do you think might happen if you never feel bad when you do wrong things? Exactly. Build that habit. Exactly. On the flip side, what do you think might happen if you always feel super bad all the time for everything you've ever done wrong? You also won't build good habits, and you'll never feel accepted. You'll never feel good enough. Right. Yep, right, right. Some people continue to do bad things because of their guilt and their shame, and it leads them into this endless cycle of like, I did this thing, now I feel guilty, so I'll do it again to feel better, but now I feel guilty again. They, it becomes like a circular thing. Yeah, that's, that's how addictions work, is any kind of addiction. You get addicted to it, then you feel bad, but the way you've learned to cope with feeling bad is by, yeah, exactly. So that's why it's so hard to break that addiction because your mind has been rewired to think this is what I do to cope with these bad feelings I have. And so it's, it, they call that rewiring when you finally break free of that and get some time apart and your, your brain begins to recognize again how to, how to cope without those addictions. Um, so <clears throat> in terms of our faith, if you never feel bad for wrong things, you're at risk of continuing to do the same things. At the same time, though, if you always live in this perpetual state of feeling condemned, you're not going to draw close to Jesus because you'll think he doesn't think you're good enough. You won't feel good enough. And so then what's, what's the solution? Well, the solution is what Paul is talking about here. Sorrow that leads to repentance. Sorrow, according to God, also called godly sorrow. And so how do we distinguish between godly sorrow and just feeling bad for ourselves? I would say it's in the outcome. If, if your sense of sorrow causes you to stay far from God and far from Christians and far from church and far from, from that because you feel ashamed, that's not the right kind of sorrow God wants you to have. Sorrow that says, I want to be restored. Like this church, they get this letter and he says they had zeal for him. They, had, they wanted to be restored to Paul again. It's the kind of sorrow that says, I want to come back to my loving father who I know is always going to forgive me. I feel really bad for what I've done, but I know as soon as I get into his arms, he's going to forgive me again, so I want to go back to him. And I want to go back to church. And I want to confess my sin. I want my family to know I'm, I'm over this. I'm past it. I'm moving on. That's godly sorrow. And all that can be done without feeling condemned. And it's very important because Romans 8 says to us that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And this is what Satan's trying to do. The accuser is he's trying to go before God on your behalf and say, look what Skyla did last week. She didn't read her Bible last week. Or look what Aiden did last week. He got mad at his brother and didn't share his toys with whatever. Or look what, look what Malik did last week. And the whole time Jesus is saying, yep, I died for that. I died for that. I died for that. I died for that. And God just wants you all to say, I'm back. Forgive me. And he's like, all right. Not that I know any of those things happened last week. I'm just giving examples. 
all right? I don't know what you've done last week. I don't know you. I'm just giving examples. <laughs> the online world. Our church has installed video cams in all your houses, and now I know what you're all doing. No. Anyway, so here we get a glimpse again in verse 12 of this person. And I think this is, I think this is a big part of the letter Paul wrote in the visit. I think there was one person causing a lot of trouble. So he says in verse 12, Although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, so he refers to this offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known. So I think there was this person, I think it's the same person he referred to in chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, This person, without saying too much, caused you sorrow. So part of what Paul must be referring to here when he writes about this fear and indignation and vindication, all these, all these terms he describes for how the church responded to his letter, I think they likely had to discipline this person, this person who caused sorrow, this, this offender. They had to discipline him. And in doing this, he may have been asked to leave the church and not have fellowship with the family of believers anymore because of these things. And them obeying Paul in that might have been the sign of obedience he was looking for. But the neat thing is back in 2 Corinthians, if you remember this, Paul then says, look, I think you've been harsh enough. You should reach out to that person and bring them back in. I think they've probably learned their lesson by now. Paul didn't think this offender was not a believer. He just thought they were probably unrepentant. He had gone through what Jesus describes as far as church discipline. If someone's caught in a sin, unrepentant, you go to them. If they don't listen, you bring a couple of brothers. If they don't listen, you bring the church. If they don't listen, you've got to ask them to leave. But that doesn't mean they're not a believer. Many times that's happened in the past. And that person, when they sense that loss of fellowship, that's what is the final, like, okay, God, I repent. I, I don't want to live without this anymore. And so they come back to the church and they repent. And so Paul is saying, this person that you may have had, had to ask to leave, I think they've learned their lesson. I think you should renew your love for that person. And so even in all this, even in the sorrow that it caused Paul, the pain that caused Paul, he was still caring about the church and that person and that person's salvation. He didn't want them to be disciplining so harshly that the person would just feel completely defeated and alone. Uh, so in verse 13, <clears throat> Paul says, so for this reason we've been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all. And if anything, I've, bo I've boasted to him about you, it was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. <clears throat> so Titus delivered this letter and they didn't just receive it and feel bad. They also refreshed Titus. They probably took care of him. They may have given him great food and lodging, and they might have even sent money with him to help Paul. Whatever that means, they were refreshed. They, they wanted to be restored with Paul. They treated Titus with honor, and that made Paul very happy. And Paul says here, so basically the things that I was boasting about you to Titus were not proven to be false. And this is kind of a neat thing, because in this moment, before Paul knew that they were going to receive the letter well. He had a lot of anguish. He's talking about writing this letter with tears. He was really struggling, and he was really afraid and worried for this church. Meanwhile, he's boasting to Titus about this church. Just think of the kind of love that, that Paul has, where at one sense he can see the issues happening in this church and the problems they're going through, and he can address it harshly when needed, while at the same time boasting about that church and the great things God has done there. I think I mentioned this last week. It's, it's kind of like when a, when a parent has to discipline a child and they seem angry in the moment, 
But like an hour later, that friend calls, hey, how are your kids doing? Oh my gosh, great. You'd have no idea what so-and-so did yesterday. And they start bragging about their kid. You know, so it's like in the same moment, discipline, but love and pride and, and just, it's a great picture. And so now Titus in verse 15, Titus' affections abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, and I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So this actually ends the first part of 2 Corinthians. Like I said before, there are three main parts to this letter. This first part's been Paul giving a defense for his apostolic ministry. The second part's going to be a, the collection of the saints. We'll look into again this guy named Agabus in Acts. He was a prophet. God told him that there was going to be a really bad famine. And so all the churches decided to gather money to send to Jerusalem to disperse among those who were being suffering from this famine. And so that's a lot of what Paul is doing on these missionary journeys. He's going through churches and collecting money. And so he's going to again instruct them on that. And that's the, the next section. And then after that, we go into, in chapter 10, Paul confronting these false people in, in Corinth more, more directly, those that were accusing him. So we're going to look at all that. And so today, in closing, I just want to leave you with this thought. <clears throat> it's important for your path towards spiritual maturity to cultivate godly sorrow because of sin. It's important and useful and necessary if we're ever going to stop continually sinning in the same ways to cultivate a godly sorrow that's just enough that we recognize the wrong we've done and it leads us to, to look at it and to look at it the way God sees it and feel bad about that and then repent and move past it. Um, not condemnation, though. That, that's going too far. If you ever feel like you're thinking about your sin in a way that causes God to look away and you feel alone, like you can't come to Him until you've proven yourself, that's not what God wants. But God does want us to cultivate a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. 